was too tall. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. I know that uh, we've been uh, just barely in the, uh, the Bible for the last uh, week, I guess, as a church family through the In the Word uh, series that we're doing, the reading through the Bible in a year. So if you're following along with that, um, you're probably somewhere in the middle of Genesis, maybe towards the end. I, I've been reading a little ahead, so I'm in Exodus uh, and uh, been reading the story of Moses. If you don't have one already, you can go to the riverviewadventist.org, go to publications, and then in the Word, and there's a, a downloadable link for the reading plan. And they're also on the back, just outside the doors, there's a book rack there, and we have the reading plans there that are available. So we're in the Bible, we're in the middle of Genesis, and uh, if, if you've been reading along with us, then you've probably started or even finished the story of Abraham. And, and you notice the story of Genesis is a story of beginnings. It's the beginning of the earth, it's the beginning of people, it's the beginning of sin, it's the beginning of God's plan of salvation. And that particular story seems to find its central focus in one family, Abraham and then Isaac, and then Jacob, which becomes known as Israel and all of his kids. Interestingly, if, we, if you look at the story of Abraham, you find that he's a kind of traveling missionary of sorts. God met him in a place called Ur and said, go to a land that I will show you. Notice there's a promise there. What's the promise? I'm going to show you a land, right? So go to a land that I will show you. And he does tell him that he's going to make him a great nation, that he'll have kids and things like that. And so he does. He goes to Canaan and he heads towards that place and he becomes a traveling missionary where everywhere he goes, he builds an altar and he has this special um, interaction with the people around. They, they know that he's the worshiper of the God of heaven. Uh, the story in Genesis 12 tells us that he took a detour because of a famine, ended up in Canaan and his uh, well, his, his wife, he kind of said, uh, she's not my wife because he was afraid. Does that sound like a guy that, that's trusting? Uh, fear and trust don't really go well together. Um, so he, he ends up distrusting God's promise, lies about his wife. God is merciful anyway. And they end up coming out of Egypt with lots of stuff, lots of flocks and herds. And his nephew, Lot, who he brought with him, also has lots of flocks and herds. And they end up being too many for the space that they came to. And so they separated. And Lot went to the valley of Jordan, the verdant valley. And uh, Abraham ended up in the hills of... Um... Oh, I wrote it down. I forget where it was. Hebron, I think. The hills of Hebron. Anyway, so they end up um, coming back together, and uh, you find in Genesis chapter 13, after Lot has gone, uh, the Lord says to Abraham, look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I'm giving all this land to you as far as you can see, to you and your descendants as a permanent possession, and I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they can't be counted. Remember, the first promise God gave was, I'm going to show you a land. And now he's saying, you're going to, all the land that I've shown you, you're going to get as a possession and all of your descendants. And there are going to be so many you can't count. And then uh, he, he also mentions in the context of these promises that, uh, that, that he's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Well, specifically that a descendant of him will be a blessing. 
I think there's, there's one particular promise. A bunch of promises are given to Abram of these covenants that God makes, but one particular one highlights something that God wants Abram to know, and that's that he's not the one that's accomplishing these things. God's covenants are promises of things God will do. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15 and look at verse 1. Before we, we dive into Genesis 15, 1, we have to give a little bit of context. Um, Abram moved to these upland plains of Hebron, and Lot was down in the Jordan Valley, and there's some uh, turmoil that's happening. The five kings of the city-states in the Jordan Valley were tired of being the, the, the pawns of the northern kings. And the northern kings were controlling them for the last, what, 12 years, I think is the number. And uh, they decided that they were going to rebel. And their rebellion brought on a war, which resulted in the defeat of the armies of the, the, the Valley of Jordan, all the five different kings that got together. And a guy named Cheddar Laomer and his army from the north won. And when they won, they, they sacked the cities, they dragged the stuff and the, the women and the children back up north with them. And Lot and his family were taken captive as well. Well, Abram, he hears about this, and he takes his guys. Does anybody know how many men there were in Abram's camp at the time? 300, 300 fighting men. That's a lot of men for a camp, but not a lot of men for a war. So he ends up taking this 300 men, and they, they end up chasing after Cheddar Laomer, and he uh, attacks uh, by night. They end up sending all the soldiers away, and they get the stuff and bring it back. He gives glory to God. He doesn't take this stuff. Uh, he ends up giving all of this stuff back to the, the cities. Um, and imagine this. Imagine this experience as he's coming back with his 300 soldiers slash shepherds back to his camp. Uh, he just defeated the king who defeated five city-states. What do you think he was thinking? What kind of an emotion do you think he has? Now, God has just promised him that he would inherit this land, and his descendants, which would be many, would inherit the land after him. And now he's angered a king. He's stirred a hornet's nest. And do you think he might have been worried, wondering what might happen? Maybe Cheddar Leomer would come with his renewed armies and come and attack him. Maybe this wouldn't be successful. Maybe God's promise wouldn't be fulfilled. And while he's in this state of uncertainty and concern, Genesis 15.1 tells us that uh, the Lord came to Abraham, or Abram in a vision. Why do you think he starts with these words, fear not? Do you think Abram might have been fearing? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. You don't have to worry about all those kings that are coming down or that might come down. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, I don't really like this translation. If you've um, known me very long, you know that I, I enjoy taking uh, the, the perspective from a wide variety of translations and trying to understand the text more clearly because I have a wider perspective. So I, I've, this one in the Eng English Standard Version, it's good, but I don't think it really gives us the meaning that the author intended. So if you look in the New King James, it says this, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, 
I am your exceedingly great reward. The implication isn't that you're going to have a great reward, but that I am the reward that you will have. This is one of the most fundamental concepts behind God's promises throughout the whole Bible. First, God's our creator, our redeemer, our protector, our provider. But secondly, that uh, the, the connection with him, living in him, this is the, the whole of life. This is what life is really made of, is connection with God. I am your great reward. Abram was understandably concerned about Cheddar Leomer, but he was also concerned about God's promise to give him descendants because he had 90 years of experience to tell him that it wasn't possible for him to have children. And so in chapter, verse 2 of Genesis 15, he says, Oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son since you've given me no children? Okay, God, you've promised this, sure, but... You ever had those experiences in your life? You read the Bible, you see a promise, and you look at your life, and you're like, um, these promises don't seem to be real for me. They don't seem to be working out. I think Abram had his priorities straight, though he hadn't quite grasped what it was that God was promising. He heard something about a reward. He knew what God, that, that God was promising him this land, uh, but that previous promise that he would give the land to Abram's children was in his mind. And he's like, how is this going to happen if I don't have any children? What good is a reward of land if I don't have kids to give it to? I'd just like to point out that this question isn't a question of disbelief. It implies that he actually believes God. Okay, God, I believe your promise. You're going to give me land. How's that going to work? Make this, make me understand. Help me understand your promises. But I don't think that Abram was, even though he was believing, he wasn't getting God's promise. The promise wasn't about him having a child. The promise wasn't about his descendants inheriting the land. The promise was that through him, all nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise was, I am your very great reward. There was a descendant that would come. Genesis 15, 5, God trying to instill confidence in uh, Abram, he gives him an illustration. He's like, come outside, let's, let's look towards the heavens and, and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I want you to have a visual in your mind, a picture. That's the number of children that you're going to have. But interestingly, this isn't just about Abram's literal offspring, God's got a bigger picture in mind that Abram still isn't quite getting. But in verse 6, the Bible says, and he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Do you ever look at the promises of God and say, I don't quite get it. I'm not sure exactly how this fits in my life. I'm not seeing it. And yet still say, God, I believe. I trust you. I'll, I'll let you be in charge even though I don't fully understand. In Romans 4, Paul uses this statement to argue that, God's, that God counts people as righteous because of their faith, not because of anything that they've done. Well, let's think about how Abraham exercised belief, how faith worked in his life. First of all, God said, go to a land that I will show you. And what does he do? He wanders off to this land that God eventually showed him. He follows God because he believes. 
And this is how belief works. When you genuinely trust, believe, have faith in something that somebody has said, then you, you build your life around it, right? Um, if this was my wife, I could say, um, she would have faith in me if I tell her I'll be home by such and such a time and she makes a meal ready at that time. This is probably not something that she would have much faith in when it comes to me. I tend to be a little bit uh, um, uh, more positive about how long something will take than reality. <laughs> so she, she's learned to adapt and maybe uh, plan for 30 minute buffer. Um, but, but it's when you believe in somebody that you build your life around them and the things that they say. Now, so he does, he, he believes God, he follows him to Ur, uh, from Ur to, to Canaan. But secondly, he confidently points out the promises that God has made to him with an expectation that they'll be fulfilled. This is something like when he, when he hears the promise of God, he's like, yes, I believe you. Notice, remember you said that you would uh, give me children and that hasn't happened yet. I believe, let's do what you actually said that you were gonna do, right? So, so then third, when God shows him the stars and makes this promise, Abram doesn't doubt. He doesn't look at the stars and say, ha, I don't even have one God. How could that be possible? He simply says, okay, that sounds like fun. Abram's faith did not dissuade him from probing deeper and asking questions, though. He's not afraid of God. He's not uh, hiding from God or just saying, okay, fine, whatever, God. He, he's curious and interested. How is this going to work in my life? And I think that's a, a good way for us to interact with God's promises as well. When we see a promise from God, uh, let's not just set it on the table or memorize it. Let's take it to God and say, okay, God, now how is this going to be fulfilled in my experience? The next thing out of Abram's mouth in verse 8 was, how can I be sure that I will actually possess the land that you promised? And again, implied in this question is, that he believes that God would, would provide this land. Do you believe God's promises? When you read them in the Word, do you believe them? Do you believe that they're for you? First of all, Romans 9 tells us, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. This means that you and I are among those people that are offspring of Abraham, the stars that couldn't be numbered, not because we were born as children of Abraham, but because we have accepted the promise of God. And, and if that's true, then 2 Corinthians 1.20 makes a lot of sense. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God, when he promised something to Abram, he was promising it to you and me. The, the inheritance, not just the physical land of Canaan, but the heavenly Canaan, the new Jerusalem, uh, the new earth that God has promised, this is all stuff that he promised all the way back to Adam and Eve, and it belongs to you and me because we are the children of promise, not just because we are the children of Abram's inheritance. Now, let's, if this is true, then we need to look at a few promises in the Bible just to get a, a, a broad perspective of some of the things God says for you and me. First, John 3.16 tells us this, 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Is whoever you and me? This promise is for us. And God then promises in Romans 8, 38 to 39 that nothing can separate you from Him. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. God promises freedom from sin. 1 John 1.9, first of all, says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, John 8.36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God promises to protect you. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God promises to be with you. John, uh, Joshua 1.5 says, I will not leave you or forsake you. And verse 9 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God promises to work everything out for our good. In spite of the fact that God gives us choice, He says, even when you make choices that aren't exactly what I planned for, or when somebody else inserts evil into your life experience, I can work things out for your good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God promises to provide for your needs, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And God promises to give you peace and rest. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God promises to give you strength. He says in Ephesians 3, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. When we take God at, our, at His word, we base our life on these promises. And we take these promises to God and we say, God, how are you going to fulfill this promise in my life? We need to go back to our story, though, because there's more to this thing that happens in Genesis 15, this covenant that that, uh, God is making with Abram. It becomes quite interesting. Remember, he's standing out there under the stars and he believes God that he's going to make him uh, the father of all of these many nations, many nations meaning Israel. And then all of the ones that you and I are connected to because we are the children of promise, right? God's first illustration was for Abram to look up at the sky. Uh, But then God wanted to help Abram understand the significance and the cost of this, this promise, this covenant that he was making. And so God had Abraham perform what's called a suzerain covenant. Are you familiar with a suzerain covenant? If you've studied this before, it was probably a word that might make sense to you, but if it's new to you, let me explain. A suzerain covenant is something back in Mesopotamian time, which is the time of, of Abram. And in a suzerain covenant, a king, 
somebody with greater authority, would uh, make a covenant with somebody who was a vassal, somebody with less authority. So, for instance, Cheddar Leomer had made a covenant, a similar covenant, with the kings of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and all these places. And then they rebelled against that covenant that they'd made, and he came and attacked them, right? So, the suzerain covenant is between somebody that's greater and somebody that's not as great. Let's just do a little experiment. Um, between Abram and God, who is the one that's greater? God. He's the infinite God of the universe, the creator of everything. Obviously, he's the one in charge. And so, uh, what, we, what they would do is these kings would, would have um, the, the vassal king uh, cut an animal in, in half, and then they would read the covenant that they were making, which usually had to do with trade laws and, and, and things about uh, war and support when, when during wartime and stuff. And so then they would read the covenant, and the vassal king would walk through the, the pieces of the animal that had been cut apart. And what he was saying in walking through this is, let this be done to me if I break this covenant. It was a covenant written in blood, essentially. So, God asks Abram to do something similar in Genesis 15, verse 9. He says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all, him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Abram knows exactly what's going to happen. God is going to require something great of him. He's going to make a covenant with Abram, and Abram is going to walk through those pieces and, and commit his life in a covenant of blood to accomplish this thing. And so he keeps the buzzards off. God hasn't said anything to him yet after he's cut these pieces in, in, in two. And he keeps the buzzards off, waiting for God to show up. And uh, towards the evening, God does show up. It says in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Euphrates to the great river, the river from the great river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. At first glance, this might sound strange, but think about how God is portrayed in the Bible. In many places, he's called a, uh, a consuming fire. And every time he shows up in the temple or the sanctuary, you end up with smoke. Uh, he leads the Israelites through the wilderness, a pillar of smoke by day and a fire by night. Uh, this um, pot and uh, smoking thing, this is the representation of God. And God does not ask Abram to walk through these pieces and make the covenant. The Bible says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant. God, the, the great king, walked through those pieces and said, I promise I will make this covenant happen even if it rips me apart. A covenant made in blood. God put his life on the line. Back in Genesis 15, 1, God says, I am your very great reward and this covenant promise that God is making, this bold statement in this uh, covenant of the suzerain covenant with the animals is that he would give his life to make sure that this covenant could happen. 
skip forward to Genesis chapter 22. Just a bunch of stuff happens in between. He becomes Abraham, and he has a son, and uh, he ends up with Isaac. And, and Isaac is um, not, probably not even 25 by this point. And God comes to Abram, and he asks him to do something. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham took Isaac and some servants. They traveled to the mountain near Moriah, and uh, they left the servants and the donkeys behind. It was just Isaac with some sticks and uh, Abram with the fire, and there was no sacrifice. And so Isaac turned to his father and said, my father, here I am, son, he says. Isaac said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram's answer reveals a depth of Abraham's trust in God's promises. He's had some growing experiences that have gotten him to this point, but he, he has this trust. In verse 80, he says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they both of them went, so they went both of them together. Hundreds of years later, John the Baptist is standing by a river, right? And lots of time has passed between this moment and John, and he sees Jesus coming, and he points to him, and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Abram might not have known it at the time, but when he said God will provide himself a lamb, he was pointing forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the promise when God said, I am your very great reward. God himself is the lamb. And I'm sure Abram didn't fully understand that, and so he stood there with his son. They had just finished the altar and put the sticks on there ready to, to burn the offering, and he, he tells his son what God has required, and his son submits. And right before the sacrifice is going to be made and he's going to uh, drain the blood, God dramatically stops Abram. And there in the bush, they find a goat. This is the first example of a substitutionary sacrifice in the Bible. Never before had a sacrifice been made so directly connected to a person who must die. From Adam on, we've had sacrifices, but it's only been ever in faith that there's going to be a sacrifice coming someday in the future that this points to. But in Abram and Isaac's moment on the Mount Moriah, Isaac was going to die, and a ram was his substitute. That ram represents Jesus, the substitute of all mankind, from Isaac and all before and ever since. Every one of us is represented in Jesus' sacrifice. This is the covenant that God made with Abram, a promise that God himself would be the sacrifice for our sins. I wish that we could say that Abram always believed God's promises, or that you and I always live as though we believe God's promises. But the reality is, we're a lot like Abram. Rewind back to Genesis 15. Uh, God's made this promise, and uh, you've got the stars in the sky, and you've got the animals on either side, and uh, all of this has happened. And then the next day comes, and then the day after that, and then the day after that, and many, many more days after that come, and there's still no baby. This is the experience that we sometimes have. We see a promise of God that He will provide or protect or whatever, and it seems like it's not working out. Um, what do we do? 
Well, Abram, um, when he disbelieved God, he lied, right? Or, or one time, God said, I, I promise that I'll give your descendants this land, and Abram's like, yeah, you mean Eliezer, my servant? Because I don't have any kids. Well, Sarah has a similar problem, and, and in Genesis 16, Sarah says to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Who has? God has prevented? Wait, I thought God promised children. She says, Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And so he agreed with Sarai's proposal. And what's what's the error of Sarai's thinking? God had promised Abraham descendants too numerous to count. And she says, no, it's not going to work out. I've got a hundred years of experience to tell me that this isn't going to be possible. I can't have children. It's physically impossible. Is anything too hard for God? No, God can do anything. So when we stop believing, when we don't trust God, that's when we disobey. Look at the story of Abram and over and over and over again, every time he disobeys, it's because he stops trusting God. He fails to trust the promises of God. And I'd like to suggest that one of the secrets to victory is that we recognize that disobedience and rebellion come from disbelief. When we stop believing God's promises, that's when we sin. So you have this Hagar situation that comes up and... uh, Ishmael is born, and it's not good, not good at all in Abram's family. Genesis 17, God brings a a new piece to this story because Genesis 15, God promises him children. Genesis 16, there's Hagar and Ishmael, and now Genesis 17, God's responding to his disbelief. And in verse 1 and 2, I am El Shaddai. What does El Shaddai mean? God Almighty. What does Almighty mean? It means that there's nothing God can't do, right? The, the, the thing with Sarah, the problem with her not being able to have kids, that's not a problem for me. I made all of the people and I can make things happen that you can't imagine. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you. Wait a second, hasn't he made a covenant already? Ah, he's coming back to remind him, I'm going to do this thing in spite of you sometimes. I'm going to make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. And then verse 4 in Genesis 17, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he's like, listen, Abram, this isn't working out for you. I need you to know in your heart of hearts that I will do what I said I will do. Don't you remember? A covenant in blood was made. I will do this. Let me change your name just so that you'll remember. Abraham, the father of nations. He doesn't, he's got one kid, an illegitimate kid, and yet God changes his name before the promise is fulfilled. He makes him the father of many nations. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. When God says that uh, kings will come from you, uh, which of those kings is the important one? Jesus, the one that would have the, the, the scepter of heaven. That's the one king that God is trying to 
keep his focus on. It's not that God would give him millions of descendants, but that God would give him a descendant through which millions of his descendants would be able to be reconnected with God, the Messiah. These are things God promised that he would do, not that Abram would do, that he would do. And for Abram to remember this, he changes his name to Abraham, and then he has him do something. And it's kind of disconcerting because God says, here's what I want you to do. You know that thing that you think makes babies? I want you to cut that. Huh. This is not an exciting idea for Abram, but he does. He, he obeys God and he circumcises himself and all of his, his uh, camp. Every one of them is supposed to know uh, that, that, and, and have a constant and repeated reminder in their life that when you try to do God's promises on your own, you end up with Hagar and Ishmael. You end up with brokenness. Adam and Eve, they learned this. When they tried to do God's promises, God promised to provide. He put them in a garden that provided everything. And when they said, it's not enough, God, I'm going to take for myself what is going to be good for me. Uh, and then we all inherit death and sin. Bad. It's always bad when we try to do God's promises on our own. And so God tells Abraham now, I want you to have a physical reminder that my promise comes not because of you, but because of me. I will do these things, he says. Ultimately, the time came when a girl who had never been with a man gave birth to the Messiah, the son of promise. No man-made intervention could have brought about God's promise, only the power of God himself. This physical reminder of the promise, I think, is it's so important for us because it's when we forget God's promises or when we fail to believe God's promises that we end up going down the wrong path. And so the, the New Testament, it tells us that we need to do a, a different kind of circumcision, right? not circumcising the body, but to circumcise the heart. And if circumcision is about remembering, then circumcising the heart is about focusing our memory on the things that God has promised. God promised Abram that he would be his shield and his very great reward. And it took him a few false starts, but eventually the Bible tells us that he fully trusted God. Romans chapter 4 says it this way, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Fully convinced. Are you yet fully convinced? Maybe you've had a few false starts already. Maybe you've got a few more false starts in front of you. But it's this allowing your heart to be surrendered that's so important. The circumcision of the heart. When we look back at Abram's story and God's promise, we realize that God was faithful. He fulfilled every one of those promises and more. We can see that every time Abram tried to step out, he messed things up and caused problems. Do we have that unwavering faith that we wished that Abram would have when Sarai said, I'm barren, why don't you take my, my concubine or take my, my servant as a concubine? 
Do we have the faith that says, I will align my life with God's promises because I believe that they're real? Or do we try to step out trying to accomplish God's plans in our own so-called wisdom, our own puny strength? Jesus made a promise. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That's God's promise. God's promise is to make a home for you so that you can live with him. And if God, the, the, the God who fulfilled the promises of Abraham is faithful, then Jesus will also fulfill his promise to us. And just a few verses later in John chapter 14, Jesus says this, if you love me, obey my commandments. He's basically saying, hey, listen, remember the problems with Abram? That circumcision thing that I had him do to remind him that I can be trusted? Do that with your heart and follow me because I'm trustworthy. Obey my commands. Solomon had it right when he said, trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Trust in the Lord. That's the solution to all the things that we face in life. Like Abram circumcised his body, circumcise your heart. Fix your attention on the promises of God and never let them go. And when something comes up, don't wander off. Go back to the thing that God has said and base your life on his promises. Never forget that God has promised to be your shield, your protector, your provider, your redeemer, your savior, and your very great reward.